This is an ABC podcast. Hey, when you think of nudism or naturism, what jumps into your head? Actually, no, don't answer that. We're all good. We're all good. No, but I'm asking because there are a lot of stereotypes about the people who are into living a naked lifestyle, but the reality might surprise you. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. Huge thanks to Ange McCormack, who's carried you through this week. Later, you're going to hear how some young Aussies reckon stripping off has changed their lives in some pretty profound ways. Some even reckon it's helped them deal with trauma. Also, you're going to find out about an ancient Aboriginal tradition that's at risk of dying out and how young Tasmanians could be the key to saving it. First, though, we're heading overseas. Hack. Some will fight, some will learn, some will support, some will sing, like us. Uh, I'm a freedom fighter with a guitar. On Triple J. You know, right now there's a bunch of people on the other side of the world who up until recently had lives just like yours. They were studying at uni or they had trades. They were keen to travel, hang out with their mates. But they've given all of that up. Now they're learning to fire high-powered weapons in the jungle. They're leading guerrilla warfare against their own country's military. So where is this forgotten war that nobody's talking about? Who were these young fighters? Well, they're in Myanmar, a country in Southeast Asia that used to be called Burma, and a generation of young people there are sacrificing everything to fight in a civil war. In a minute, we're going to hear from a journalist who, you know, risked his own life to find these young fighters and bring you their stories. But first, Ellie Grounds explains in this story from the ABC's foreign correspondent. So I was born in 2000, so... I don't know much about the military and the, the bad government. When the military coup happened, uh, we all are shocked. And the things that we learn in the history and the, we have seen in movies and stuff, uh, the villains and everything, it all becomes real life, real life, you know. Benjamin Soom should be riding the highs of being a national pop star. He shot to fame after being named the runner-up in Myanmar Idol in 2019. But today, he's a war refugee, forced to flee from his home country to neighbouring India, where he and his bandmates use their music to raise money and awareness for the fight back home. Some will fight, some will learn, some will support, some will sing, like us. Uh, I'm a freedom fighter with a guitar. Myanmar, which used to be known as Burma, is the largest country in mainland Southeast Asia and shares borders with India, China and Thailand. In February last year, Myanmar's military launched a coup against the civilian government, angry that the government had increased its majority at the national election. The takeover by the military, also known as the Tatmadaw, has hurled the country into a bloody, brutal civil war, with regular people mobilising and picking up guns to fight back. Some of the fiercest resistance is coming from a place called Chin State, one of the most remote and least developed regions of Myanmar. But it's not being led by experienced soldiers. It's being led by young people. Most of people in CDF are between 18 and 25. This is 28-year-old Min Liang Tung, or as he calls himself, Millions. He's one of the camp leaders at the headquarters of the Chinland Defence Force for his town, Tuntlung. It sounds official, but the CDF isn't an established army. It's really new. All of CDF are start after the military cop. We are the young people uh, before the coup. Uh, some of people are, they are working in NGO 
some of people are students and all of those people are decided uh, they have the feeling to against the military cop so that they are coming here to join the CDF. 28-year-old Chung is the commander-in-chief of the Tantlung CDF. He reckons what the young fighters lack in experience, they make up for in enthusiasm and passion for their home. But it's very difficult to lead it. Very difficult to lead them. Because before, we are a student. We didn't know how to shoot. We didn't know how to, um, how to care this gun. Our tactic is like uh, wolf hunting. If they come here, I will call uh, my team over. Uh, they follow their back. This is our land. We express uh, everywhere. <laughs> the Chinland Defence Force is massively outgunned by the ruthless military. And the young fighters know the stakes are high. If they're caught, they'll be tortured or killed. They will kill. They have no mercy. While the CDF is fairly new, the CNA, that's the Chin National Army, has been around for decades. It's a legit armed force and has been training young CDF members. At the CNA Jungle Headquarters, Camp Victoria, the highest-ranked official is Dr Sweet Carr. These young people, they should not be in the armed revolution. They should be in their education or their other, other work. And then when I talk to them, what they say to me is a very clear. They like to be the last generation who suffer from this military dictatorship. Before the coup, 22-year-old Emily was studying international law in Myanmar's former capital, Yangon. Now, she's part of the Chinland National Army and wields a gun fighting for her homeland. I was a little scared because I've never participated in a war before. However, it was for my people and my country. I was willing to be ready. Even here, they don't usually ask women to hold guns. It can be because there aren't that many resources for weapons. We also want to hold guns. We want to fight like them. Emily says she's willing and able to kill a military soldier. Yeah, no problem. 18 months ago, nobody really thought that young guerrilla groups like the Chinland Defence Force stood any chance against the Tatmadaw. But they've surprised everyone, the military included. This day, you can get information easily because uh, all people are our intelligence. Not only the Chinland, the whole country. <laughs> when the army make one step from their camp, just people send <laughs> all information to the whole country. <laughs> and Millions reckons it's this people power that could lead them to victory. No, we don't have enough money and enough gun for winning this battle. But just only that we have it, our uh, spirit uh, to take down the military cop. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, Ellie Grounds with that update. We've got some messages coming through on this. Somebody says, I have close personal ties to Myanmar. I've visited there many times. One of my friends is now an urban soldier. Many other friends are in hiding because of their outspokenness. It's good to see some attention on it. And yeah, I want to keep diving into this because there's so much to this story and it might be something you haven't heard much about. And we've got two fascinating people with us now to break it down a bit more. First is Matt Davis. He's with the ABC's foreign correspondent and Matt's one of the bravest journos I know. He's the real deal, you know. He travels to all kinds of places around the world and he's just been to Myanmar to interview the people you heard from. Matt, thanks for coming in. 
Thanks for having me, Dave. And also with me in studio is Tasneem Rock. She's an actress, but also an advocate, and she's with the Myanmar Campaign Network. Hey, Tasneem, hey. thank you for coming in as well. Thanks for having me. Matt, I want to start with you. You've spent a lot of time in Myanmar over the years. You know the country really well. You've done this hectic trip to speak with young people at war with Myanmar's military dictatorship. How dangerous was that trip? <sighs> On a scale... Dave, you know, it was it's out there for sure. But look, it was I was invited. I've I've been covering Myanmar for several years now and I've got a lot of good friends and trust there with the people. And so I was invited to join the Chin National Army and the Chinland Defence Force and come and spend some time in their liberated areas. Um, we did visit close to the front line there where, where a lot of these fighters had come from. They, they, their town, you know, a, a year ago was 12,000 people. It's now a raging battle zone on any given day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and it was also just getting around the place. It's a very remote part of the world. So you think motorbikes, trucks, just all kinds, everything that could happen, happened. But uh, I made it back with a good story and uh, it's, just, it's an important story to be told because it's like the name of the film, Myanmar's Forgotten War. It has dropped off the pace of the media there for, for some time now. Yeah, and I want to talk a bit more about that and talk about the work that you've done because you've done this crazy doco on this that people can watch and it really is beautiful and so interesting. Was it hard to get young people to speak with you or they wanted to tell their stories? It's interesting. And and this I this is specifically in Chin states. These are the Chin people. Now they they are very proud ethnic group in Myanmar. They are unified. They are absolutely hate the Burmese military. And so for them, there was a chance, an opportunity to show the world in this forgotten part of the world that these were the people that had sacrificed everything, like you said before, um, to take up arms and, you know, firstly liberate Chin State, but then ultimately what they want to achieve is to defeat the military. And that's a goal that's now shared across Myanmar amongst all the other ethnic groups. There was a, it's a, it's a huge development to see everyone kind of unified actually for once against this military. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like they've been underdogs, but now there is some real concern that, um, you know, these young people could have a fighting chance here. Yeah. It's the young people picking up the arms, but you've got to remember it's the entire population that are supporting them as well it's older women cooking food it's the school kids collecting firewood it's 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 everyone it it really felt I really got a sense of this unified resistance and like you said a year ago when we last made a documentary on Myanmar there was a sense that these kids had no chance of ever defeating the military but talking with them on the ground there, there is a there's a hope and there's a sense that you know it might take a while but with a bit of international support things could change. What were some of the craziest things you saw? I imagine there were times where you're out there in the jungle as well, you're on these boats, you're surrounded by young people who are talking about pretty normal lives they had before and then all sorts of crazy stuff's happening around you. I met DJs. I met, uh, well, me and my representative soccer players. They were in the under-23 squad. I met law students. I met, uh, uh, sadly, I met a barber who had his hand blown off uh, clearing landmines. There were many different characters. And again, they were just like a lot of people listening in here now. They had all these different things going on in the world. Some of the most disturbing thing was actually seeing the um, the basic weapons that some of these kids were armed with. They're fighting against a military that's armed by, you know, Russia, basically. And they have got, you know, 100-year-old hunting rifles and homemade bombs. So there's actually quite a lot of risk for them just in making some of these weapons. Of course, they've acquired some automatic weapons now through you know, beating Burmese soldiers or something across, smuggling some across the border. But in the most part, they're a pretty undergunned um, collective of youth, but their spirit is strong and that's what they're, um, they're putting their faith in. I was reading as well that 
more than half of Myanmar's population is under the age of 30, which is really interesting. And I've seen people describe this as a lost generation. When you were talking to those young people, the young fighters, did they think that about themselves? Are they just resigned to the fact that they're not able to start their lives as normal? What kind of sentiment was there? It's an absolute sense they've been ripped off, that they've had their futures taken from them. But there was a a sense, a determined sense that they were going to win so that no other generation ahead, a younger generation, would have to live like through this type thing again. No one wants to go back to a dictatorship. Myanmar lived for decades under a military dictatorship. This is the time to finish that. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. We're unpacking what's going on in Myanmar, a civil war that's being led by, you know, young people. They're out there fighting, ordinary people who've just put their lives on hold to fight for their country. I'm speaking with ABC foreign correspondent Matt Davis, also Tasneem Rock from the Myanmar Campaign Network. Tasneem, you've got a personal connection to Myanmar, right? Like That's where your dad's from. Yeah, that's quite right. So my dad came out here in 1960 under the Colombo Plan and... Uh, unfortunately, in 1962, there was a military coup. So just to remind everyone, this has been happening, you know, uh, numerous times over It's a decades. long history. Yeah. It's been going on for a long time. And I mean, we hear about other conflicts all of the time. Like right now, there'll be a lot of people who are up to date with what's going on in Ukraine, for instance. Why do you think it is that if this has been, you know, playing out for so many decades, that so many Australians still have no idea what's happening in Myanmar? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, it could be simply that it has been going on for so long that that's just business as usual and people become a little bit, um, I guess, apathetic potentially to that issue. But I think what's really important to remember now is that this human rights and humanitarian crisis is spilling out and affecting the entire region and and, and affecting Australia as well. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there a big like diaspora community here? Are there refugees, people who are campaigning for more action from Western countries here in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yourself, obviously, <laughs> like you're out there campaigning, but are, are there rallies and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. They're very vocal. They're very passionate. Um, just recently, um, unfortunately, there was the anniversary for the 8888. So this is a student massacre that happened uh, on the 8th of August in 1988. And so there was rallies across the country, uh, commemorations, this kind of thing. And I'd also like to remind everyone that on the 25th of this month uh, is the, the fifth anniversary of the Rohingya genocide. So it's there's a lot of really, really heavy stuff that's happening now. And I guess the reason I'm mentioning it is because we really want Australia to take some action on this. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about the Australian government, has there been a lot of support in the past? Has there, um, you know, been a lot of discussion about this? Where, where does the Australian government sit on all this? I think the Australian government has made many, uh, I guess, um, many statements in support, but what we're now looking for is action. It's been 18 months since the coup. Over 2,000 people have been murdered. We've just seen, you know, four uh, pro-democracy activists, political prisoners being executed. Um, 1.2 million million people internally displaced since the war broke out. Yeah, and 1.2 million refugees in neighbouring countries. So Australia, since the coup, has issued no uh, new sanctions, whereas, uh, you know, our democratic allies like the US, the um, the EU, uh, UK, Canada, they've issued like 198, uh, 196 
uh, sanctions on individuals and I think 176 entities and we haven't managed to sanction anyone, I mean, the question is, you know, what are we doing here? When you're out there talking to people, do you find that they are really interested and want to learn more? And when you kind of bring this up, tell them all of this, they're like, oh, wow, I never knew, but I, I want to hear more? Yeah, I think I think it's the case that, um, you know, like Matt said, it is kind of forgotten in in the news cycle. And, um, you know, when you explain it to people, they'll, they, they, you know, they do want to know more. Um, but it's about getting it in front of their face. So thank you for this. <laughs> hey, well, Matt, you've done some epic coverage on this. If people want to learn more, there's an incredible digital story you've done. It's on the ABC News website, visually stunning. Please check it out. But also you've done this doco. Where can people uh, see that? Yeah, Dave, so tonight we'll be live on ABC television from 8 o'clock. It's also going to be on iView and our through the ABC YouTube channel. You can check it out. And please, please take a look uh, as... We were saying, you know, it's, it is a forgotten war, but I think if you check this one out, these young kids fighting and what they've given up, it's really going to make a, a bit of difference in Myanmar's outlook. Yeah, I think there are so many people listening right now who will be fascinated in hearing more about this. It's all there. We've also got some more info on Hack Social, so head to Instagram, check out our explainer there. Matt Davis, ABC foreign correspondent, activist Tasneem Rock, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you. Hack. Yeah, it's, they're very important, like... All there is now is the younger people to keep going and keep doing it. On Triple J. We're changing gears a bit now to something back home and I'm wondering if you know what mutton birding is. Have you heard of it? Maybe not. And that's actually part of the problem. Mutton birding is an ancient Tasmanian Aboriginal practice. It's been happening for thousands of years, but there's a lot of worry that it could die out. And First Nations leaders are hoping young people are going to be able to keep this tradition alive. Our Tassie reporter April McLennan has more. I put my hand down a hole and I couldn't get the bird. I could really feel it at the end of the hole. I couldn't get it. So I got up and I put my hand down another hole and there was nothing in that one either. It was really annoying me. So I went back to that hole because I knew there was something in there and put my hand in it and just slowly pulled it out and the snake bit me. Didn't see the snake, I heard the hiss. It was just like when you get in like a needle or something and just peers in your skin, you can feel it. And I knew it wasn't like a mutton bird scratching you or a penguin. I knew it was definitely a snake chopping me back to Launceston and it took him four hours to get me back. But the only thing that saved me was the snake only got me with one fang and not the two. That's Gloucester Cavalza. Don't worry, he's okay. He survived the snake bite. But if you're wondering why he was shoving his hand down holes, it's because he was mutton birding on Babel Island in Bass Strait. It's actually home to Australia's largest mutton bird rookery. And Tasmanian Aboriginal people have actually hunted and eaten mutton birds, also known as short-tailed shearwater, for more than 10,000 years. But Gloucester doesn't want his experience with a snake to scare you off. In fact, he hopes to see more young Indigenous people take up the practice. Like on the island that I'm at, there used to be 25 sheds on there, and now there's only one. It's a dying culture and we need to bring it back as much as we can. And that's pretty much why. And I just, it's good over there. Like you're being surrounded by water. There's only 10 of you on the island. You don't hear nothing, but don't hear no traffic, no one apart from who's there with you. And it's just a really peaceful place. Picture this. You're on a remote island trying to catch these birds that look like fat pigeons. They have little webbed feet and grey feathers. And when a chick's caught, it's hauled out of the burrow and its neck snapped. The harvested birds are taken back to the shed where they're plucked, cleaned and cooled before being packed and sent off to market. What does it taste like? 
Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> but what you can compare with, I don't know. Some people say it's got a sort of a fishy taste because the adult birds feed the chicks with krill. Other people say it's a slightly oily sort of quail. That's Michael Mansell from Launceston. He's the chairman of the Tasmanian Aboriginal Land Council. Michael says there's some mutton bird sheds that have more young people working in them than old. People like me were brought up, you know, back in the days when whole families would go to the different islands. We'd have probably 150 on one island, you have 100 on another one and 100 on another. So there were big numbers of Aboriginal people. Those numbers are not the same nowadays, but it's that family connection. It's the knowledge that we're carrying out something that our ancestors did. He reckons there's both social and cultural aspects to mutton birding. You know, rather than be at the school in the city where you've got one Aboriginal child to a classroom of 30 or something, when they go to the mutton bird islands, they're in the majority. They're among their people, they're with people who they were brought up with. It's that cultural and social bond that draws young people to the islands. Gloucester thinks young Indigenous people play a really important role in keeping this cultural practice alive. Yeah, they're very important. Like, all there is now is the younger people to keep going and keep doing it because, yeah, I haven't seen the older people that are real good, that people talk about and stuff, that are still here today and they just can't make it over on the islands. So it's just all up to the younger people now. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, April McLennan with that story. Really interesting. Mutton birding, maybe it's the first time you've heard about it. You can check out more online. There's a whole bunch of information people are messaging in. Zach from Hobart says, I used to go mutton birding on the west coast of Tassie every year when I was a kid with my family. It's brutal as, wouldn't catch me doing it these days, he says. Everyone almost seems more familiar naked than they do clothed. You know, a few years ago, I was on holiday overseas and I got a boat out to this tiny island that was filled with people at the beach. And I got off the boat and started swimming up to the island and as I got closer, I realised, oh, okay, it's a nudist beach. Right, everyone was having a great time playing soccer, bit of beach volleyball, so relaxed. And I did think, hey, should I do this too? and you won't believe what happens next. No, but really, naturism, nudism, definitely not for everyone. There is this stereotype that it is a bunch of old people standing around awkwardly, but actually more and more young people are getting into it. And maybe you're one of them. If you are, let me know. You can message in 0439 757 because some people reckon it's helped them heal from all kinds of trauma and body image issues. And so our reporter, Angel Parsons, has been looking into it. We've got a massive water slide, a spa on the front of the boat. They'll be snorkeling, scuba diving. Like, I dare say that there will be some yoga, maybe some walks. Picture this, right? You're on a yacht sailing the gorgeous with Sundays with a bunch of cool people. Only they're not wearing clothes and neither are you. It's an out-of-body experience. It was just so incredible. This is Alana Jeffrey. She's from Gladstone in central Queensland. And recently she hopped on a boat for a sailing weekend with a bit of a twist. Everyone almost seems more familiar naked than they do clothed. 
Alana's a naturist, a lifestyle or practice all about non-sexual social nudity, whether that's in private or in public settings where appropriate. For me, when I pictured naturist, I absolutely had that preconception that it was, you know, a predominantly older, like male kind of situation to be getting yourself into. And then joining the community, it's predominantly your 20 to 30s. So like the people my age walking kind of the same walk of life, like have the same kind of experiences. You can call me prude, but the thought of getting my kid off in front of strangers and going for some like nude yoga or something is pretty terrifying. But young nudism or naturism enthusiasts like Alana say it's about more than just being naked. It's a connection to nature and the outdoors and addressing stigma. And she reckons it's the most empowering experience. The first two minutes you're in your own head and you're worried, oh my God, are these people like looking at me weirdly? And then after that, it's just so normal. It's like no one judges anybody. It's actually had a pretty profound effect on her life. I only got into naturism through my husband. I went through a lot of body dysmorphia, eating disorders, all through and because of sexual trauma. Um, And he actually introduced me to the group to kind of take back control of my body and being able to see myself in a positive light and go, hey, this is me, this is my body. I am able to show other people and go, hey, I am naked and still have complete control. This sailing trip Alana went on is run by Get Naked Australia, an organisation and community of people practising naturism. They have a pretty strict screening policy to make it a safe space. Their founder, Brendan Jones, says all their events have a gender balance. We get probably 50 requests from solo men a day, so we of course can't let everyone in. He reckons a lot of people come with preconceived ideas and concerns. People come thinking they're going to be judged and people are going to be looking at their bits and bobs, but that's really not the case. Like when when you're within the right community and the right people, no one cares, no one looks at anything. Um, We say it's about being naked rather than being seen naked. Dr Gemma Sharp is a researcher and clinical psychologist at Monash University, and she can totally see why people in the naturism scene do report benefits with their body image and eating disorder concerns. And I will say that I have had some patients who have been very interested in this and I've absolutely supported it because it's a social environment rather than a sexually charged environment. And I think that's where people really misunderstand what these communities are all about. She says our relationship with clothing and fashion is a huge driver of a lot of body image concerns that people have. Fashion impacts how we feel about ourselves. And I think we think in the past we didn't have all these clothes, did we? Like what it means is that what we have underneath our clothes is more taboo. And I think that's where a lot of body shame can come in. But if you're already in a pretty vulnerable place, is it a good idea to try out something so well, for a lot of us, so different. With any kind of community, there's the opportunity to to be coerced into something that might not necessarily be helpful for them. And I think a small step would just be, before joining a community, would just be to try it out in your own home, do it safely, and see how that goes, see how that feels. And if getting nude in a safe space with people you trust is working out for you, Dr Sharp reckons there is potential for it to be a really positive thing. 
why do we have these body ideals? What purpose do they serve other than to really, I suppose, fuel the, the beauty industry? So I think, I suppose that's where naturism comes in. It's actually going, no, there isn't an ideal. And that really resonates with Alana, who says naturism is becoming a big part of her healing. I'm 100% in control. And that in itself is so empowering that it's just, it just makes me want to do more. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that story. And yeah, we talked a bit about body dysmorphia, eating disorders in that story. So if you do need help, remember you can call the Butterfly Foundation. They're on 1800 334 673. Or you can always get Lifeline on 13 11 14. And there are so many comments coming through on this one. Caitlin in Toowoomba says, I've done the dark mofo solstice swim the last two years. Absolutely the best fun you can have recommend it for everybody of all walks of life. Somebody else says, my friends and I recently went to a nude beach on Magnetic Island, first time. We didn't get nude that time, but heaps more comfortable atmosphere and I would go nude next time, right? Sounds like something that might happen. Sean from Bendigo says, damn, Alana's husband sounds like a keeper. And another person says, I'd love to try naturism, but wouldn't know where to find an experience like it. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.